Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing Article 18, Section 2, and the Tim case, as well as strategies to fight procrastination and to actually get writing. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Jeez, welcome to 2021, uh, Marta. Yes, it's a new year for Bistec public procurement podcast. <laughs> exactly. I don't even know if this is still, I have these really uh, strict slash annoying colleagues that don't allow people to, um, to, to, to wish them all the best for 2021 after a certain date. Uh, but okay. I think particularly in these times, we should be able to wish everyone still a big fat uh, happy new year, I suppose. And mostly I think all the best in these, uh, in these still COVID times, but I think there's, there's, there's good stuff on the horizon. Absolutely. And I think it's also a great opportunity for us to reflect a little bit um, on our podcast. Uh, We don't have yet that many episodes, but we have entered the new year. So we would for sure want to take this opportunity to thanks to everyone that has been listening and liking, commenting, subscribing, getting in touch and giving us uh, their feedback. It's super nice to hear from everyone it gives us for sure a boost to keep on going and 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 believe that that we actually do something cool. Yeah, believe that someone's actually listening, right? That's I think uh, we started this first uh, the first uh, episode. I think what's um I I fully condone whatever what what you just said, right? It's it's been an awesome experience. We loved getting the feedback. Now, if you want to help us, please recommend the podcast. I think one and perhaps share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, we we love it. It's been happening quite a bit already, but uh, we can always use some more followers and and listeners and perhaps also people that want to join into the. The debate that we have in each uh, in each episode. Um, so today, like I said in the introduction, we're discussing Article 18, Section 2, and a recent application um, of of this article, which has been discussed quite extensively in literature. Uh, it in uh, in in a court case called Tim, which is I, th- I think a great uh, name for a. This is a great name. It's After awesome. like all this super long, complicated yeah. names, Tim is brilliant. Particularly the ones coming from Italy are generally uh, a bit more challenging to pronounce. But Tim is, I don't know. Tim I, is just good to go. I don't actually know how you would pronounce this in, a, in an Italian fashion. Um, but um, let's uh, let let's go from uh, from there. Um, but before we do that, let's go back a little bit to our New Year's resolutions because, I mean, we're talking bistec, right? A Dutch word. Uh, we need to which, talk some food. We need to talk some food, right? Bistec means cutlery, but also the the, the Dutch word for public procurement documents. Um, so what's your new, new Year's resolution for food? Oh, yeah, I think that that's actually pretty good and, and timely question. I, th- I think, you know, we're looking for quite long lockdown still right we don't know when we're back so i think on the one hand side it's for sure looking into um healthier food options 
uh, but at the same time supporting local business. It's a little bit also connected um, with uh, one of the new projects actually that I've been will be working on this year. It's on um, sustainable procurement of food and looking into agriculture and farming. Um, the this year um, in Denmark there has been um, also. Um, released a new recommendations for food that change a little bit of recommendations uh, balances between uh, how much meat you should be eating versus other forms. So I think that for sure we're going a little bit more into this uh, plant-based, green, healthier options. Um, let's see how long how long I can <laughs> live with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'll leave my New Year's resolution until for the dessert when we start talking about the fight uh, against procrastination. Because in, in the past, I've always linked that with food, but um, okay. we'll talk about that a bit later. <laughs> Let's get started yeah. on um, uh, on Article 18, Section 2. Um, maybe you can um, uh, introduce us into the context of this article, um, and perhaps that requires a bit of a short recap of a previous episode, number three, that we did on the EU Green Deal and the transit that this uh, European policy document might uh, entail towards more obligations in in public procurement law to sustain to to procure sustainable outcomes. Um, sure. So very briefly, I think firstly we both wrote on sustainable procurement fairly extensively until now. So we are more than happy to also refer anyone who would be interested in a more in-detail discussion of those topics to some literature. But for the purpose of today, I think, uh, why um, why we thought that this is an important or relevant, interesting conversation to have is uh, because it seems to be a this lingering atmosphere um, around sustainability in public procurement that something more mandatory, more obligations are coming in. But this has been uh, a subject of, of uh, a lot of literature and debate for several years right now, where sustainability is placed, um, whether this is a matter of discretion and facultative elements or whether there are some sort of obligation. We started with an extremely restrictive approach uh, to that uh, from this narrow interpretation of internal market with questioning whether at all you can consider elements that are not strictly economical with Concordia case setting us off, so to speak, and establishing this um, uh, concept of link to the subject matter through developments along the way, multitude, multitude of strategies, soft guidelines, uh, with the new directive um, somehow embracing uh, sustainability quite excessively. There is a lot of reference to it. But the question, of course, is again, are we really, not on policy basis, but on legal basis, are we actually moving uh, towards a more mandatory approach to those questions? And I think Article 18.2 is particularly interesting in that context because it is an article that is... Uh, paragraph of, of an article that is titled Procurement Principles. And as we know, principles are to be the tool that provide us with an interpretation to a whole directive, all aspects of procurement, right? If, you, if you're in a situation that you don't know, you cannot find answer, you should be looking to principles for the interpretation. 
But of course, in that regard, uh, Article 18.2 brings certain controversies and criticism towards that article. And now we have Tim Case. So I think that this very briefly is a question of whether we actually getting something more tangible, legally speaking. Like an obligation to procure sustainable outcomes. Um, now you 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 you're doing a you're building a great uh, you're how should I say you're building the anticipation. So let's take one step back and actually uh, give the listeners uh, a bit of uh, groundwork to to start analyzing this themselves as well. Once we go through it, Article 18 in the directive, right? We're talking about the classic directive. It contains uh, Section One contains the the the, the yeah the more uh, standard I would say principles, right? Equality. Uh, transparency and proportionality. Now, clearly, there's some discussion about a principle of competition, but I think we'll leave that for today because we'll f- mostly focus on section two. And I think it's useful for me to just read that out loud. Um, and that section states Member states shall take appropriate measures to ensure that in the performance of public contracts, economic operators comply with the p- applicable obligations in the field of environmental, social, and labor law established by union law, national law, collective agreements, or by the international environmental, social, and labor law provisions listed in Annex X. And Annex X contains uh, a great amount of treaties uh, on on these various fields of of law. Yeah, majority, sorry sorry. to jump in, just to clarify, majority of the acts that are uh, mentioned in the Annex X or Annex 10 are actually just ILO conventions. There are a couple of environmental ones, but it's majority of them is ILO conventions, just to give context of also what we're talking about. Yeah, clear. And and I have to say, when I read this out loud, um, or at least if I would do this at home, um, half the people would have tuned out, but it does get us excited, I suppose, this this, this article. Um, Now... I think uh, anything we'll be discussing today, and, and we've identified a couple of issues or at least talking points relating to this uh, article. I think the, the general question is, what does this mean for public procurement, right? Is, this, is there an obligation to procure sustainable outcomes or is there not? And maybe it means something like that. Um, we have three issues. We want to talk about what does appropriate measures mean here, because there is a certain obligatory nature here. The article refers to shall take. Um, uh, first issue, appropriate measures. Second issue, applicable obligations. What does that mean? Um, and uh, based on the Tim case, which we'll discuss at the end, the question uh, of, yeah, is this a principle or not? Um, maybe to kick off, appropriate measures. Yeah, so appropriate measures um, are directly linked to um, also who is the addresser of of this provision, right? And and, and there has been a fair bit of discussion on that. The article is um, addressed to member states and then a fair bit of discussion what that means, whether whether it actually um, allows to ignore that provisions by some member states and not introduce them. And that is the case if you will, if you look at Danish Procurement Act, if you look at the um, English um, regulation, you won't find equivalent of Article 18.2. You'll yeah, so find a sort of paraphrase, par- paraphrasing of this article in, 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 in the other articles that refer later on in the directive to 18.2, but you won't find that. And as I was about to interrupt you just then, sorry for that, 
Um, uh, the same goes for the Netherlands. In 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 the Dutch context, there's an uh, an, an obligation for contracting authorities to tell economic operators where they can get the information about these applicable laws um, and an obligation to request these uh, economic operators. And this is where it gets interesting that they took into account these mm -hmm. obligations. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean that yeah. they, I mean, perhaps complied with would have been a better mm -hmm. uh, thing. But uh, I mean, we have some more details on this, but uh, in, in general, I think the the Dutch legislator did not view this as a general principle. Clearly not. But More of a procedural you, requirement. Mm -hmm. Do you have it in in under your section on principles? This elaboration, just to go no. back to what you mentioned. No. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this is quite interesting, and and I just want to note that because when we will come back to Tim, then we sort of will loop this in a circle, and we will finish on this conversation on this point where we are right now, whether it's. If you as a member state did not include 18.2 under the principles, is that can we talk right now about inappropriate um, transposition of the directive, right? If that is a principle, right? But um, yes, uh, there is the first important element is for sure this wording of shall, that the member states shall take um, appropriate measures. So as you mentioned, uh, Willem, some idea of duty, some generic duty, most presumably. And the question is, uh, what are the legal consequences of this of these provisions? Because those are quite unclear, right? And more specifically, what the appropriate measures in this provision uh, actually means. Um, there is fair bit of a discussion um, on the fact that if the member state did not specify more, in other words, if it's just a copy-paste provision, most presumably there will be quite a minuscule change to be expected because it's very general and it's very broad and what it actually uh, actually means, right? Um, what is interesting is um, that 18.2 is referred to on a couple different places within within the directives. So you have a reference to 18.2 when we're talking about facultative exclusion grounds for non-compliance with what the scope of 18.2 is. Um, we have also reference to it in the general power to not award contract in the case of non-compliance. And we also have uh, the provision on abnormally low tender. And that's the only moment in which 18.2 and 18.2 comes into place um, and is identified, non-compliance with 18.2 is identified as a reason for abnormally low tender. That's the only time that we actually have an obligation, very clear, I think, non-disputable obligation to reject such a tender. Um, but all the other moments in which we have a reference to 18.2, they are ultimately facultative. So that leaves a discretion to contracting authority to take it on into consideration or not. And that already, I think, is a first red light or at least orange one to uh, have that in mind. Because if you would want to compare it, let's say, with transparency, quality, etc., well, they, it, it's not that you sometimes are to consider it when it's relevant. You are to consider it always, right? Would you agree? Yeah. No, for sure. And I think that's that's also in, in your really um, getting to the core of, I think, the, the the biggest issue, which has made me conclude in the past that it isn't a principle, 
is because of the difference between section one and two, right? So in section one of article uh, 18, yes, it's mentioned as like, it's or at least it's headed as principles of public of procurement. The public is not there. Um, the conclusion is still the same, is that section one refers to contracting authorities, right? Whereas section two refers to the member states, right? There's still legislative action to be taken. And the only obligations, or at least in my my idea, um, that actually come into play is when Article 18, Section 2 is used in those articles that you just mentioned, right? So Article 18, 2 becomes relevant once we're talking about abnormally low tenders, right? Now, me saying this, I totally realize that the court <laughs> apparently doesn't agree with me, or maybe it does. We'll get to that. But um, I, yeah, I struggle to, to identify this as a principle, mostly because of this, the fact that it, 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 it seems more like a duty for the member states rather than a procedural uh, aspect to take into account in all aspects of a public procurement procedure. Now, I think setting aside whether I think we should move to mandatory requirements, which I think we should... Uh, I'm not sure in the current state what the actual effect of Article 18, Section 2 is, right? Just to link up with what you were saying about appropriate measures and 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 the the, the actual uh, uh, actor that is referred to in this uh, in this section. Yeah, so I think that you know, um, from a very lawyerish perspective, right? I would say, depending who my client is, right? If I were to really defend this view. Um, I would for sure argue that there is enough of case law, and in my commentary to 18.2, I refer to some of that literature and on some in some of my other writings. There, there are cases, and there are some um, well-known authorities in a, in a literature that refer to the fact that on several occasions, state and contracting authorities are actually anonymous; like they are identified as the same, so to speak. So whenever you refer to the state in context of public procurement, you actually, that's equally applicable to contracting authorities, right? Now, um, we also have a reference to contracting authorities and residuals in context of this debate. However, as I say, this is this is very unclear and I don't like, as a from academic standpoint, I just don't like the the unclarity and the and 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 the and the blurriness of this and there is also uh, it has uh, speaking with a couple of people from European Parliament. Um, I also heard that that was very much a political choice to to not burden contracting authorities, but put that burden on on member states. But it is a problem then, of course, of limited uh, enforceability or questionable enforceability, particularly also if you um, look. Um, in the context of this debate also on position of commission. So commission which used to be very aggressive uh, towards uh, towards transpositions and particular infringements. Um, commission did not indicate a very clear strategy um, to open infringement procedures in context mm -hmm. of 18.2, right? Um, in shortcomings in that regards. Rather they have um, this very soft approach which has been communicated in the 2017 strategy, mm. the one on making procurement work in and for Europe, right? So very supportive. Yeah. But I think that this is this is where this becomes very problematic because what those measures means, 
I think that this is quite interesting what you said in Dutch context, because you pay a lot of attention and you have quite elaborative guidelines on how you apply a principle of proportionality. And at the same time, also, if we would look a little bit to Scottish regulation or public procurement, they also refer to appropriate and reasonable necessary aspects. So I think this notion of due diligence, uh, proportionate due diligence, uh, I think that's where I would be looking for, you know, what are the appropriate measures, right? Because it cannot also go unproportionately broad. Is that is is that Speak, is that speaking to you or not really, Willem? What do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it should speak to me. Um, but <laughs> I, 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 yeah, um, I think what's definitely necessary is more guidance on what actually is appropriate, right? And, and you're right, we can look at the different member states to see what's happened, perhaps in light of the proportionality principle as well. Um, but uh, just getting back to what you were saying about the member state, and or perhaps your argument was, Actually, the the legislator is is unclear when it refers to state, and and often it it actually includes the government, right? So you should also include local and regional contracting authorities yeah. in this regard. But I think this would still be a different case, and this just, or at least the way I read it, and whether in, to to use your words, I'm being very lawyerishly right now. Mm-hmm. This is a clear form of harmonization, right? This is the member state, not as an executive branch, but the member state as a legislator. So the member states, as legislators, need to take appropriate measures. So, um, and I think that totally defeats the idea of um, a broader view um, in 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 this regard, um, because you know we're talking about the legislator, the the, the that's supposed to take action. Uh, so I don't really see how this would bind contracting authorities in this uh, in this re- in this regard. So I think. To sum up this uh, uh, discussion, I think uh, when we look at issue one, it's definitely clear, and this is what we do agree upon, is that it's currently unclear and often not uh, uh, done, implemented properly on what appropriate measures are, right? So when we look at the national legislation, that nothing's actually uh, uh, going on. Is that a correct conclusion to find some middle yeah, ground? Yeah, I, I, th- I, think, I think that it's very much very broad very open it's it's a bit of a black hole we don't know and i think that what we can see for those member states that are more proactive within these areas is that, that this due diligence proportionality is being used as some sort of form to put restraints on 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 the measures but we don't know and unfortunately at least in that regards tim is not touching at all this no. this issues right no. so we so won't know. Work for the uh, European legislator in um, for the next reforms, right? I would say that's that's definitely a point of attention. I think for sure. I think that ultimately the reason why we're also discussing this today is because I hope that our podcast, if we if practitioners listening to us, even if this is not super applicable in your day-to-day work today. I think our role as an academic is academics is also to be one step ahead, right? And predict. And I think if we continuously talk about these things becoming mandatory, changing, I think that um, those are some of the potential issues and challenges that soon can land on your desk. And hopefully with the work that we're doing, we are able to somehow support you with um, with interpretation of, of, of these provisions, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I think that that's actually a twofold effort, right? We're trying to make sure that the legislator in the end creates clear and and norms that are actually applicable in practice. <clears throat> excuse me, or that is act that are actually usable in practice, and that contracting authorities are perhaps prepared for the for the future. But let's look at issue two: the the applicable obligations. Um, sure. So. In the context of 18.2, the applicable obligations in area of environmental, social, labor laws, right? Um, the aspect here is, um, does the problem that arise as to which of this obligation uh, should be considered? Are obligation applicable in the member states where the contract has been awarded? So the place of a contracting authority, or uh, those are applicable wherever the service um, is to be provided or goods produced, right? Why this is important? This is quite important, particularly in context of manufacturing of goods, because if we are to look at the applicable obligation of the country when the goods are being produced, uh, that can take us to so-called third countries, right, outside of EU often also outside of um, international trade agreements. Um, so, so the status up here can be quite different. And just to provide a one um, really over-exaggerated um, issue, right? Let's say we have a company producing things in the EU and that company needs to obey by set of different rules, uh, regulations, directives, laws uh, that are harmonized um, and established within the EU on aspects of labor, environment, etc., etc. And then we have also a manufacturer that is somewhere else that none of this law are um, applicable, of course, and none of similar laws are not really in place. So up here, particularly some of the small and medium enterprises in Europe, the argument, the the, the complaint that has been launched in context of, of outsourcing um, has been that, well, they need to account to their prices, right? Um, also aspects of being able to meet those legal requirements. So sometimes uh, this discussion about applicable obligations is also in context of leveling playing field, right? Ensuring that we all play the same game, that we all are applying the same provisions. So um, I am personally um, of an opinion that this should be quite broadly interpreted, that um, if you want to do business in EU, you need to obey by the EU standard on labor law, on environmental aspects, right? The applicable obligations that are mentioned um, in, in Annex 10 and Annex um, X, as we mentioned earlier, are mainly uh, labor law, um, ILO conventions related, some on environmental environmental um, issues too. Um, interestingly, what we won't find in that annex is ILO Convention um, number 94, which specifically covers labor clauses in public contracts, right? So on the first glance, that seems like something that really should be part of it. But um, there are some challenges in that regard. Um, some member states are not part of this ILO convention, so they also didn't want that to be included by somehow to suddenly 
uh, be binding to them. And there are some questions on um, correctness on the on the intersection between EU laws and and this ILO convention. But besides that, of course, applicable are national and EU. Um, set of, of of laws and 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 there is fair a bit in in this regard just to give one that arose uh, um, that arose uh, around uh, that um, legal act a lot of literature and a lot of case law and there's the posted uh, workers directive right um, and all the saga regarding um, minimum wage um in, in, in public procurement. So there is fair a bit about this uh, application. And the one last element here that I wanted to point out is that, of course, we need to also differentiate when we're talking about applicable obligations between the laws that are in place and that are mandatory and obligatory versus a certain policies and standards that, so to speak, want to give added value to um, public procurement, but they are not dictated by binding existing law, right? Two different sort of levels, so to speak. Yeah, and to link to that as well is, um, I, I've always wondered, uh, I think for practical reasons, this approach was taken in, in terms of applicable obligations. Um, but in a way, I think one, um, uh, particularly environmental law, which is, clear, which is clearly struggling with enforcement, um, or it still is and has done so uh, since the start of uh, EU environmental law and also on the national level it happens, is that public tenders are used as an enforcement method, right? So we have to fix in public procurement law what other fields of law can't fix themselves, right? You could say if the standard is those laws, right, why do we need this to include this in a public procurement procedure, right? Wouldn't it, and this is perhaps a more of a a thought for the future, wouldn't it be just better to compete based on, on sustainability and um, uh, in those environmental aspects in terms of award criteria instead of continuously referring to existing laws that are already apply, right? These contractors mm -hmm. already need to abide by it. So look, it, uh, I, I think in a way it can't hurt, but like, why not uh, establish proper enforcement agencies in environmental law that actually prevent damage to the environment rather than uh, using contracting authorities to this uh, to this extent. Um, <clears throat> so, but that would be more my uh, take on uh, critically assessing this article. Um, when we talk about applicable obligations, of course, you're right that that's the scope. But the question is, should that be the approach? Yeah, so I think that... Um I agree with you, absolutely, because I definitely am of an opinion that it should not be the case that public procurement is to save the world, you know, so to speak, right? <laughs> would be nice, whatever, though. But... <laughs> whatever is not working in other areas of law, let's just chug it into public procurement and, and let's um, have it done that way. But um, but at the same time, I'm quite... I, I'm quite... Um, on a normative standpoint, I think that I really perceive public procurement as something different than private procurement, right? It's a public thing. It's a public payer's money. It's this, this idea of public interest with all of this contractual agreement. I think that that's very important. And I'm not fine when that is somehow put on the side or a focus is on very strictly zero-one commercial approach. 
I definitely have of an opinion that that needs to be all balanced. But in context of environmental law, I think particularly right now, I, I really also believe that um, it's a little bit all hands on deck approach. We have really crisis in this area. So ensuring an additional layer of enforceability in context of public procurement, that it's contractual enforceability and tying it if it would be done properly, which is not done really excessively, have that in mind, because we sort of want to address the policies, but we're not putting enough clauses connected with how important those clauses are. Um, so um, if you would tie this to um, penalties, fees, potential terminations of contracts, et cetera, et cetera, if you're promising, mm. let's say, clean production and you're not doing that, um, I think that if we would want to do it properly, then I, I see there a potential for additional layer, you know, of contracting um, enforcement, which is tied to potentially damages, which can be quite motivating, I think. Because if we don't know what it is about, it is about money, right? But I think we don't do that. We sort of say a lot of things about applicable obligations, et cetera, et cetera, within uh, contract performance clauses or conditions somewhere along the way. Uh, but we don't give it enough teeth for this to be truly, uh, truly um, enforceable or actually enforceable, put in effective. actionable, effective. I, I can see a future episode today. coming on about, about, oh, yeah. about contractual conditions. We should definitely do something with that. Um, sure. I think what's, uh, uh, I, I mean, I fully agree with you that it's that public procurement should play a role, right? We don't, we don't differ on that aspect. I think uh, the, the question is more, what's the most effective way? So my idea would be more keep environmental law standards to, to what, what they are. And then we just get contractors that actually fulfill them. And then maybe we can push them a bit more via public procurement, right? Mm. Show that you can do more. But uh, um, what happens in these podcast episodes actually is that we we go um, in, in, into real depth. But I, I was tasked today to keep, uh, keep a check on the yes. time. Um, and we did a, um, a ramp up or we, we started as a, with a cliffhanger about the Tim case. So I wouldn't want to uh, start talking about the dessert for today about procrastination without actually addressing that case. So maybe you could introduce it uh, briefly. Sure. So where Tim comes um, as an interesting context for our conversation today Tim talks about facultative exclusions and subcontracting, and it really is focused on that. But there is a part of Tim case that specifically touches on, on aspects of Article 18.2, in which for the first time court actually says something about Article 18.2. And that is directly connected with the third issue for today that we somehow started to discuss, and we said a couple of words about it, but that is whether all this consideration that are in 18.2, can that actually fulfill the test of Article 18.2 being a truly a general principle? And why I think we both with Willem and we're not alone here, there are some huge names in public procurement um, academia that I think agree with us all on that, that there is a lot of criticism to be addressed towards 18.2, um, towards the fact that it actually does not fulfill the standard of principle. But it's almost as the court of justice would want to say, wait, you all people think that you're smart. <laughs> so Let me just say something different, right? So what happened was that um, 
we had the judgment in 18 too. And one, until until this judgment in Tim, one of the um, criticism or one of the pointers also to, to say why 18 too is not a general principle is that usually when we talk about principles in public procurement, the language is extremely strong, right? You must, is prohibited, et cetera, et cetera. In context of this environmental and social aspects, the language always been quite soft. It, you might, it is permissible, right? It's it's sort of discretionary. You, the may being the predominant uh, wording. But then we have the Tim judgment and the court actually introduce a certain strong language. And I'm quoting right now from the um, Tim judgment. Comparable situation must not be treated differently and different situations might not be treated in the same way unless such treatment is objectively justified. That is an example, and I'm sorry, that's uh, my mistake. This is not a um, para from the Tim case, but that is to give you an example of how strong the language is in context of principles, right? So we have this must being specifically uh, referred to. I'm scrolling down, scrolling down in my notes to actually get to the, um, there we go, to the um, Tim. So for the first time when the court had a chance to comment on it, um, the court confirmed that 18.2 should be considered a principle of public procurement law stating EU legislators sought to establish um, Article 18.2 as a principle. Like the other principles referred to in paragraph one of that article. Namely, the principle of equal treatment, non-discrimination, transparency, proportionality and prohibition of exclusion of a contract from the scope of the directive or artificially narrowing uh, competition. It follows that such a requirement constitute in the general scheme of the directive a cardinal value. Big words, big words. Big words, right? (laughs) Those are just huge. A cardinal value with which the member state must must ensure compliance pursued to Article 18.2, right? So big words, cardinal value, member state must ensure compliance, right? So um, this is interesting. Um, but again, the follow-up question of that is end. Yeah, what does right? this mean? Uh, when I first mean? read it, I thought, oh, interesting from an academic perspective. What, 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 what does this mean? Yeah, and as, as a practitioner, it doesn't really provide you much clarification. It it reassures, let's say, that this is a principle. But again, it's so untransparent because it can include so many things for specific procurement, right? And and there is an interesting commentary to that um, some time ago. Maybe we can actually link um, in our blog post to this episode. Some time ago, I wrote an article about... Um, corporate social responsibility in, in Danish context in public procurement. And up there, I looked at the, the one of the cases in the Danish uh, complaints board uh, for public procurement. And a little bit in the comparable theme of, you know, having these really big obligations um, on on SDGs, on ILO conventions, et cetera, et cetera. The tenderer up there was complaining that this is untransparent because it doesn't really specifically tell you what you need to fulfill. Right, which I guess um, valid point. The answer up there of the complaints board was, well, if you're a member of a market, right? If you're a, a company that exists in specific market, it's part of your day-to-day business 
to know which of these laws apply to you and ensure that you are compatible with them, which is, I think, quite interesting mm. to just parallel, you know, interpretation also here because it's very broad, but it's almost saying, well, this is European standard. You cannot say that I am to tell you which labor laws you are to obey by. You should know as a entity at the market what laws are applicable to you. Yeah. Interesting, uh, interesting analogy. Also, when um, I, I don't know what your response was when you, when you read this, it was a bit of excitement and also like a confusion, like I just mentioned when I saw this mm-hmm. this reference in in paragraph thirty eight. Um, <clears throat> I think though is is my understanding of, of of the impact will be very limited, and the reason why is because I when I continue to read the judgment. Uh, particularly in in 39, so straight after when the court has these big words about cardinal value and that it's a principle, is Mm. that the court then says, uh, in those circumstances, the need to ensure appropriate compliance with the obligations referred to in Article 18, Section 2 of the Directive 2014-24 must enable member states. So again, eh, the reference to member states, not contracting authority, not uh, state in general, when determining, determining the implementing conditions of the ground for exclusion referred to in Article 57, Section 4A of that direction, etc., etc. So the way I would look at this is it's actually an obligation for the legislators in the EU to, when they implement these aspects, is that they take into account these obligations, right? So it might make the law more um, uh, compliant with these obligations, but whether Article 18 is a principle that we need to take into account every procedural step of the way can still be questioned, I think, because mm. the link that the that Article 57 uh, makes, that link is already there, right? There is a link yeah. between Article 18 and 2 and 57. So in a way, I think what's important is the court recognizes the importance of these obligations. But uh, to me, it seems like it's still very limited to the links that are had already that already exist, and um, I, I wonder, I strongly wonder if this now means that contracting authorities need to tender more sustainably in the mm. end. So, just to wrap up this point, three, 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 uh, you know, elements that came to my mind when you were commenting on this. First of them is. What is then the consequence of this judgment using the words member state must if you then combine it with the facultative exclusion grounds, right? Because the facultative exclusion grounds that you refer to ultimately allows contracting authority to disregard it, right? It's facultative. Yeah, true. So the idea would then be if you apply it, then you need to take it into account. Right, yeah. right. So, But then it's, again, it's the question of, of value and importance of this provision. Because if it's allowed to be absolutely ignored, then there, it does not have value, right? So that's my first thought. My second thought in that is also then to loop it, as I mentioned earlier on, to this discussion about Dutch legislation, Danish legislation, the English one, that's just the ones that that, that we know um, for the fact that don't have this listed as a principle. Then my question here is, can we on the basis of Tim and this cardinal value, principle of procurement, can we actually talk right now about the situation that if you did not transpose it that way, this is an inappropriate transposition of the directive. Because if it is a cardinal value and you must ensure compliance pursuant to 18.2, there might be situation in which um, 
there are other provisions that are relevant to 18.2. Specifically, I'm thinking technical specification. And technical specification under directive does not refer to 18.2, right? But we have 18.2. So you can argue that, you know, the general application of it is there. But if you did not implement it as 18.2, as Dutch or Danish and English um, have done, then something is lacking, right? And this is very obviously maybe theoretical. I'm just hoping that one day it becomes very practical and we have, you know, a little gold nugget here. Oh, well, we'll get there. But um, you, you you know what I mean. I just I just wonder because it's 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 open like it does it's not really answer much and introduce even more uh, confusion. And to conclude our main discussion today, I think the purpose of this is just to say that it seems that if that's national governments, uh, if that's EU, everyone want procurement to be more sustainable on policy basis, political standpoint, setting targets, et cetera, et cetera. We can see that, of course, within the procurement, but it's a little bit one step forward, two steps backwards, right? Because you want something, but there is too much limitations um, to really embrace it fully. We are not able to do that in a strictly legal sense, right? Yeah, not yet. For sure. So I Not think um, what we've looked at is, is Article 18.2 in light of Tim. Is there a sustainability principle that's been introduced of cardinal value, as the court says? Um, we might have our doubts uh, on, but I'll actually look forward to discussing this in the future, particularly in light of what does appropriate measures mean? What is What do we do with applicable obligations? Uh, and as you can hear, Marta, I'm going to round it up a little bit on this substantive aspect because I'm really looking forward to dessert as well. And I would like to keep some minutes available to that. Um, I think <clears throat> what sparked this idea, or at least to briefly talk about this, is that as academics, we're uh, we're prone to procrastination, right? We 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 live free, dreamy lives, or at least in the <laughs> ideal ideal scenario, we don't have administrative tasks. And you can hear my sarcasm here a little bit. Um, but Sorry. and we're here to do research, and we're here to write. But then when you look at that blank page, uh, the blank page syndrome, procrastination kicks in, and perhaps uh, news websites are scouted. Fantasy football leagues are filled in and other stuff happens than actually uh, the work. Laundry, laundry sadly seems like super exciting thing it, to do. I can tell you sit, sitting in my, my office upstairs in an attic next to the washing machine, that definitely happens the whole day. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're not psychologists. We can only, one, establish that it is very difficult as academics sometimes to, to, to get focused and to really start putting to paper those, those thoughts that you might have had. Uh, but we can share um, how we deal with it and what's been effective uh, for us. So, so what's what would be a, a, or at least a, a takeaway from your side on that sense? In that sense. So I think that where I would want to hopefully bring a bit added value is a little bit connected with New Year's resolutions, a little bit with COVID for sure. All these different things that ultimately tie us back to to existence in our home offices, homes, etc. And I'm hoping that this um, can be a bit helpful, as I found it quite helpful, um, not only for our fellow academics, but also maybe some of the students who by any chance maybe listen and working on some sort of master thesis or any other form. I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts, a little bit done by psychologists and all sorts of other people. And I will bring some of the main thoughts that 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 I thought really helpful for us as an academics in context specifically of writing. 
And um, what are some of the techniques um, to fight procrastination? Um, one of the things that I listened to identified this four steps technique, which I think is super um, interesting and, and, and spoke somehow to me. And, and I will give you those four steps and then Willem, I would want to hear what you, what you think about it. So first one is to really, really clearly identify what it is that you procrastinate, right? It is creating a new curriculum, is writing an article, writing a book, whatever that is, right? Really clearly identify that one element. The second thing is to try to answer yourself a question. What is the reason for your procrastination? Is that because something is boring, annoying, hard, unstructured, ambiguous, or do not do not have purpose, or you do not see the purpose of it, right? So it's very um, direct point of that. Um, and then when you base it on which one element of that is, and just to, to give a little bit, became a little bit vulnerable and disclosure, I think about it very specifically in context of writing my monograph, which is happening and happening and somehow cannot happen because there is always something else, right? So writing a book monograph in that sense is difficult, and, and I find it just difficult. It's hard and why this is hard, right? So that's your point three, why it is hard in the case of, of my project, right? And then you um, identify why that is. In my context, is very much time management. There is always 5 million other projects to work on, right? And then you are to do the absolute opposite of that, right? So you specifically identify with this four-step technique, the reasons behind it, and then specifically trying to address the sub-issues, right? In other words, up here it would be, well, if it's hard, how you can make it simple, right? Is it um, making sure that you take, I don't know, a course on writing a book or academic writing, or is it time management element of specifically scheduling actually in your calendar the same way as the 500 non-existing administrative meetings that Villa <laughs> mentioned. Yep. Um, scheduling a specifically time to do that, right? So those are those among some other things that um, I listen to in, in, the, in the fight to... Uh, not procrastinate. Not procrastinate, exactly. So in a way, I also find what's hard when we say procrastinate, like very often procrastination is also useful, right? Because you can clear mm. your mind. And if, if I don't know, if procrastination is really, you know, when you start reading about the uh, that uh, um, Harry and Megan got a contract to set up a podcast, I mean, that's when you really realize like, okay, maybe I should start doing something else. Now, for me, the best way to motivate myself during my PhD was always to give myself a snack. <laughs> and I promised I would get back to this when I started with food. Is yeah. I said I was going to give myself, every, every paragraph I wrote, I could eat some chips, right? Now, mm. in COVID times where we sit a lot more, that's definitely not the way to go because you will balloon out and that's also not good for your health. And that, in the end, doesn't help you with writing nor procrastination. So on a more broader thing, it's what's super interesting that you just said that is also um, what I've noticed, and this is my New Year's am ambition or uh, resolution, is to really limit my times for other stuff uh, so I could focus on, on research. So I'm not taking any meetings before 9.30 nor after 4.30, right? 
Now, mm. this is my general rule, right? If it's necessary, of course, I'll budge. But if the, it's in my diary, no one can plan in meetings then unless they specifically ask me and I make the judgment. I go for a walk between 12.30 and 1.30. Oh, I, I, we should go clear for a walk, walk. today. Yeah. <laughs> I do record, the same thing. We it's could record the funny. podcast yeah. during during those walks. Yeah. And it's these are unbreakable rules. And because of that, I feel like sometimes I can also plan in the research, right? So there's a mm. block in my, in my agenda and that can't be trumped. That's when I do research because otherwise I find it just doesn't happen uh, happen anymore. And still I procrastinate, but at least this provides some type of uh, a bad feeling of guilt that I create on myself if I take that part of my agenda out, right? Because otherwise it's just free and you think, oh, look, this is, I can just work on it. Um, so that would be my food for thought when it comes to uh, procrastination. Yeah. Uh, it, not saying that this actually is is the the holy grail because it's super difficult to to stay focused and, uh, and motivated, particularly when you're a person like me that's totally focused on deadlines. So procrastination mm. goes out the window once I know that something needs to be finished nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll be working late, um, and that's when the full focus is there. And all those days before when I had the time to yeah. do it, you know, that's when uh, Harry and Megan pop up. Yeah, but you know, this is also super crazy because I'm very much like you in that regard. And then you're realizing how much you can do in such a short amount of time, right? For sure. um, and then how much you could actually do normally. But I do think that amongst um, those uh, thoughts that we have on procrastination, one thing comes very clear. And, and I think both of us, and I'm hoping that our listeners also can identify with that. And that is the notion of... Um, our to-do lists are growing and growing and particularly in bigger projects. Um, well, with your PhD, let's say you really have a deadline, but if you're above your PhD, um, well, there might be a book contract, but um, book contract, you can always kind of postpone. It, there are different sort of approaches, right? But bottom line, this sort of projects that don't really have a deadline, they usually are being pushed on the very bottom of our to-do list. And ultimately then that leads you to the situation that I work on the book since two years, right? And somehow it's, it cannot, it, it's not yet here. Um, so I think that, that um, I also started to do this thing of what you mentioned. I really pencil in specifically um, I have one day for research. I don't take any meetings uh, on Thursdays. I don't reply to emails on Thursdays. Thursdays is Outlook is turned off and I have booked for whole semester that day out. This is the day that I really do research and and you need to make sure that you somehow really give yourself space for that, right? Because Excellent. the longer we I think what also works is external pressure. So now that you've said to everyone that you're going to, to the 5,000 listeners that we have of this podcast, now everyone expects a book. So A book, right? Uh, it's it's well, happening. That's called accountability, right? <laughs> I'm like, is... I've pushed myself. It's accountability. Now I really need to get this going. <laughs> exactly. Well, that worked. Um, I'm, I think we really need to leave it at this. It was a pleasure Absolutely. talking to you again in the new year. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, this was with Stack, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestecpodcast.com.